And if you haven't already, if you could open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, where you'll find the text that Jonathan just read. If you want a CSB, you could find those in the chairs. Uh, Also, I hope that you got a service outline when you came in this morning. I've put the text right in that outline for you in the Christian Center Bible translation so that you'll have that as well. And I've also put some of my outline in there for you as well. So you want to catch that so you don't have to try and furiously write some of the notes that maybe you're going to try and grab. In my previous sermon on Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, I shared with you a story from my seminary days. Maybe you'll remember it from a couple of weeks ago. It was a fellow student's response to me in relation to a biblical quandary. It's abundantly obvious to the most casual observer, Matthew, he said. Very rudely, I might add. Well, if Andy were here and we were working together on Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25, I would be able to respond with full confidence. What Paul is on about in this text is decidedly not abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. It's not even obvious to the most intently focused observer because observers like that, scholars, commentators, interpreters, the church fathers, have been arguing for centuries about exactly what is going on in these verses. And in particular, asking questions like, who is the I that keeps cropping up in this text? And is the I a Christian? Or is the I someone who is not yet a Christian? Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 25 have reminded me once again this week of the necessity of coming to God's story in the Bible with humility and with full dependence on the leading and guiding and revelation of the Holy Spirit to help me and to help us understand it. It may be that on this Sunday, more than any Sunday previous, it is important for me to remind you of a few things. First, what I'm about to share is my current understanding of the text. You've heard me say that before. I still have questions. I think that there are more nuances here and implications here than I have yet discovered. I know that I have more to understand and learn, but I think I know enough to still be able to preach on it and just enter right back into worship. Second, I'm not infallible. I know that's not shocking to you, but I still want to say it. The conclusions that I've come to are held by some and disagreed with by others. I feel confident in where I currently stand in relation to this text, but it doesn't mean that more understanding wouldn't come with more study. There's never enough hours to prepare for this moment, you guys, in a week. Just never. That's why I say it's my current understanding of the text. And by the way, I don't think this makes me wishy-washy. I think it just makes me honest. Finally, You must study every text that we study together on a Sunday morning for yourself with humility and prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit for God will give you understanding in everything, Paul wrote to Timothy. Now, with that on the table, there's another thing that I have to do. It's a little bit unusual than how I would normally preach a sermon, but I need to give you a couple of presuppositions before we enter into verses 7 to 12 so that you understand why I've come to the conclusions that I have when we start working through that text together. 
Here's my first presupposition. It's an answer to the question, who is the I in verses 20, in verse, uh, 7 to 25? Who is the I in verse 7 to 25? Now, that might seem like kind of a silly question to you. You might respond, well, the text says I. Paul wrote Romans, so the I refers to Paul. What well, could be clear? Why are you trying to be so clever? However, I think there are a couple of reasons to think that the I of this passage is broader than merely Paul. Namely, I think the I here speaks to the experience of Adam and Israel and Paul with them and is thus the experience of all humanity. I think this because in chapter 7, verses 8 to 10, he says, I once was alive apart from the law. He is describing an experience that he could not have had. As a man born into this world as a sinner, Romans 5, and as a Jew born into this world under the law and circumcised on the eighth day of his life, Paul had never been alive apart from the law. So that should give us pause about assuming that he is directly the I here. In addition, I hold to a broader understanding of the I in this section because of the self-understanding of someone who lived in Paul's culture and world. Namely, they weren't focused on individual status no matter what, like we are in the West. Rather, they had a far more communal understanding about life. They lived in solidarity with one another. Douglas Moo points this out when he says, people were viewed less in isolation and more as parts of units, family, tribe, nation, and so on. One's own nature and destiny were often seen to be a product more of participation in these corporate structures than of one's own personal decisions. Jews in particular emphasized the importance of solidarity with the nation. For example, in the Passover ritual recited each year, every Jew confesses that he or she was a slave in Egypt, even though they weren't in Egypt, and was redeemed through God's mighty deeds. Thus, what the nation has experienced, the individual Jew has experienced. Do you see? We, we must not see this text through our Western eyes and understanding and cultural experience, which is so at odds with how Paul grew up and with the people that he was originally writing to. So with such a premise of solidarity in mind, I think it further explains texts that we've already studied, which also make the case for solidarity, that we are, all of us, tragically in solidarity with Adam, as we saw in Romans 5, that we are, all of us, also gloriously, who are disciples of Jesus, in solidarity with the Messiah, as we learned in Romans 6. At times, even in our Western milieu, we have this kind of thinking, don't we? When we sing songs like how deep the Father's love for us with a lyric like, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We're seeing ourselves there with those people in that moment when Jesus was crucified. So that's my first presupposition. The I in this text is a broader I which speaks to the experience of all humanity generally, including Paul specifically, and therefore you and me. My second presupposition, which follows from the first, is that Romans 7, 7, 25 
cannot possibly be the description of the experience of someone who is already a believer in Jesus. The reason I'm so confident of this is primarily because of context, which we've said here before as well. You've got to look at the context of a text in order to understand it. And the context for this passage that we're giving ourselves to over the next two weeks is chapter 6, verse 1, all the way to 7, verse 6, and then Romans 8, 1, and following. Okay, that, that's the borders of our text under study. Now, remember, therefore, in Romans 6, that Paul has already described the Christian as someone who has been freed from sin, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, 17 to 18, verse 22. But in 714, we hear the testimony, I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. In Romans 6, Paul described the Christian as free from the law, 614 to 15. But in 722 and 25, the testimony is one of one struggling to obey the law. In Romans 6, Paul describes the Christian as dead to sin and alive to God, but in this section as sin being revived and the I being dead. Further, in this section, we don't hear anything at all about the Holy Spirit. But in the preceding context in Romans 6, we are told that the experience of the Christian is that in Jesus we walk in newness of life, chapter 6, verse 4, and that this happens through the Spirit, chapter 7, verse 6. And in the following context in chapter 8, we are going to continue to hear the most full-throated display of life in the Spirit that we will hear in all of the letter. The experience of the Christian so freed by the work of the Messiah. In other words... Reading chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, verse 6, and then 8, verse 1 and following, which bracket our text shows that those who are in Messiah Jesus and who share in the Spirit have been saved from the horrible things that are spoken of in chapter 7, verses 7 to 25. So the I of 7 to, verse 7 to 25 cannot be a Christian if in fact the Messiah has delivered us from slavery to sin, if believers are under grace and not law, if the Holy Spirit enables believers to fulfill the just requirements of the law. Is there a reality in the Christian experience of ongoing struggle with sin? Absolutely there is. Paul speaks of it elsewhere, but not here. Romans 7, 7 to 25 is not the text to look to to support that experience. So, with all of those presuppositions in place, the introduction is over. Now we're ready to address what exactly is going on in this section. Why is it here at this point in Paul's argument? And how does it fit into God's larger story? To these questions we now turn over the next two weeks. Verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? We already need to pause and ask right here. (laughs) Why is Paul even asking this question? We've just observed that this text is bracketed by chapter 6, verse 1, to chapter 7, verse 6, and verses eight, chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. And what's really fascinating to me is if you look at Chapter 7, verse 6, and chapter 8, verse 1, he could have gone right from one to the other and pulled out chapter 7, verse 7 to 25. And his argument would have made complete sense. For he says, 
in 7.6, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. And then in chapter 8, the law of the Spirit of the life in the Messiah Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? See, I think Paul wants to talk about the Spirit. He is excited to talk to us about the Spirit. But when he says, not the old letter of the law, he stops himself. (laughs) The thought strikes him. They're probably in danger of misunderstanding me. I've said so much about the law aiding and abetting sin and death against humanity, they are in danger of taking their critique of the law a bit too far. They may actually equate it with sin and death. So I better pause right here to raise that issue on their behalf. Thus, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But... I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. So once again, Paul is abundantly clear at this point. The law is not sin, period, full stop. However, that passionate response does not mean that he is retreating from his teaching on the law. And here's what we have to understand. He's teaching on the law at a very particular place in redemptive history, right? He's teaching on the law in the age of the Messiah, in the age of the spirit of the Messiah, who gives us all that we need to honor and please God. Versus, right, that's where he's standing in history talking about the law. Versus if he was way over here with Moses, talking about the law. Those are two different places in history to speak about the law. And Paul is decidedly over here as someone living in the new covenant age of God's story. And for someone living in the new covenant age of God's story as an unbeliever before Messiah, before the cross, before the Spirit, how does the law function? Paul says that in a pre-Jesus state like that, the law makes people aware of their sin, even if they wouldn't necessarily call it sin. For example, if it were not for the law, we wouldn't know what it is to covet. If the law had not said, do not covet. Now, when you read that text, have you ever asked yourself the question, why did he pick that law? Why that one of all of the ten that he could have chosen? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to know what coveting is, right? Coveting is about a deep and passionate desire for something. And in the 10, it is a prohibition to desire your neighbor's wife, his servants, his cattle, anything that they own. And this command is unique to the rest of the commandments in the 10 in that it is the only one that forbids a disposition And so focuses the attention on one's inner life where decisions take place, which then lead to sinful actions of all kinds. And from James, we learn that in chapter 1, verse verse 15, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. In in other words, there's a sense in which coveting This kind of desire is the root of all other sins. And therefore, it is like this encapsulation of the entire 
Old Testament law. Pretty brilliant by Paul, isn't it? But again, does this make the law the bad guy in this scenario? Well, the law certainly isn't helpful here in one sense, but Paul is saying there's another power at play, uh, another force that pours gas on the fire of the law to produce a raging fire of desire that will then produce desires of every kind like flames tearing through a dry forest in a drought-ridden region. And the force is sin. Paul is clear. It is sin that seizes an opportunity, he says, takes advantage of us in our weak flesh, and through the commandment produces in us the raging fires of sinful desires. We traveled this last week to 29 Palms, California to visit our son, who is a Marine stationed at a base of the same name, just outside of that little town. And in order to get to the base, you, you travel through this little town, this little village almost, called 29 Palms, and you, you hit Adobe Road, and you, you take a left on Adobe Road, and, and you start making your way outside of the town, and it kind of comes over this ridge, and all of a sudden, everything just spreads out in front of you, and you see this ginormous marine base sitting at the foot of a bunch of mountains. It just opens up there in the midst of the civilian world, a base of of operations from which may be unleashed the most deadly fighting force on the planet, the United States Marines, skilled, (laughs) skilled and trained to bring all of their energies and power, all of their resources of death and destruction to rain down death on their enemies. Seizing an opportunity was military-type language in Paul's day. And what Paul reveals is this surprising turn of events that the law itself becomes a base of operations for sin to wage war against our souls. Sin in its deviousness, in its slipperiness, in its slyness and cleverness actually makes the law a base of operations by which it can produce in us every kind of coveting and every other sinful desire. It's like this Trojan horse inside the law to destroy us. Paul doesn't specifically say how this happens. But I'm wondering if it's a bit like with our kids. (laughs) You know how we tell our kids not to do something and that then becomes absolutely the thing that they completely focus their attention on doing? Parents, can I get an amen? And there's an extent to which I think some of us just always keep acting like kids, right? We see that speed limit sign and we go two miles an hour faster. And we want to do that thing all the more. And the next thing you know, sin has its way with us. For apart from the law, verse 8, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, see verse 8, right? Same thing, he's saying it again. But this time deceived me and through it, killed me. 
Sin is dead. Now, if you've been reading through Romans and you keep reading through Romans, that seems to be a bit at odds with chapter 5, verses 13 to 14, where he said, he describes sin as in the world before law, and while not counted, operating and creating death in all who sinned. So, so how can he say here that sin is dead? I wonder if what Paul is doing is clarifying that once someone sins and therefore dies, they're dead, and so sin in this way experiences a kind of death, no longer able to grow in its dead host. And then when the commandment comes, as it did to Israel at Mount Sinai, the law of Moses, sin, as it were, got a new lease on life. It grew and flourished in all kinds of new ways, seemed to be operating everywhere and created a whole new set of problems through the law. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me, me in solidarity with Israel, me in solidarity with humanity. And this is a further surprise in our understanding of the advent of the law in the larger story of God's mission to save humanity from sin and to get us into relationship with him. Because originally, if you've read the whole story of the Bible, the law was meant to bring life. Leviticus 18.5, keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them. I am Yahweh. Deuteronomy 4.1, now Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinance that I am teaching you to follow so that you may live. Deuteronomy 8.1, carefully follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase. And read Deuteronomy 30, 15-20. Do you see? We see in the Old Testament that the promise of Torah, of the law, was life for those who would keep it. And this for Paul was the real irony of Torah. Here he almost personifies it as he personifies sin, seeing it as a character, holding out the possibility of all of this life. If you would just keep me and obey me, you will have life. But the tragedy is that because of sin, all that the law can provide is death because nobody can keep it. And just how did that come about? I think we see the echoes of the origin story in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. See, this is why biblical theology is so important, why it is so important for us to know and have in our minds the whole story of God. Because when you read that verse, I think you hear whispers of the very beginning of the story. For it was there in the very beginning that we heard, right, we heard a commandment, Genesis 2.17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And it was there in the original story, we found the great agent of sin himself, the Satan, deceiving the woman and the man, Genesis 3. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And by making the commandment his base of operations, through the commandment, Satan killed them. And they were exiled from the presence of God and being made from dust to dust, they did return. And thus through one man, we've learned from Paul, sin entered the world and death through sin because all sinned, Romans 5, 
12. And thus Paul identifies his pre-Messiah self and all humanity along with him, with Adam as being deceived through the commandment and killed. My, Michael Bird says it this way, the, the deception in, the, in question probably refers to anyone who thinks that keeping the law provides a sure path to life with life defined as belonging to the people whom God will deliver into a new heavens and a new earth. Deception, meaning the belief that the law provides security when in fact taking up the law means coming under a death sentence. Verse 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. To which, based on everything Paul has just said, you might say, how? <laughs> how is this so? You, you seem to be a bit negative still about the law. You've called it a base of operations for sin, increasing sin. How is it holy and just and good? Well, this is where we have to keep family. We have to keep getting the story of the whole Bible in our Minds to remember that the Bible above everything is a story. N.T. Wright says it this way, it is the great story of God in the world and of God's people as the people of God for that world. And Torah, the law, stands as the headline over that story from the time of Moses to the time of Messiah. But the story which started before the giving of the Torah moves on beyond the time when Torah was the determining factor and the law now celebrates that fact. That's what Paul is doing in this passage. He is showing us what might be considered the strange purpose of the law and the story. See, the first point of the law was to get us to understand how bad we really are so that it could help us understand and reckon with how desperately we need rescue because of how weak we are to accomplish that on our own. That was the first role of the law. Romans 8, 1 to 4 then says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So do you see why he can say it's holy, just, and good? Because the law is not the bad guy but the law is used by the bad guy to point us to the good guy. In this way, the law becomes an actor in God's drama to get us to cast ourselves on the mercy of the Father, to trust in the death and resurrection of the Messiah, and to embrace and flourish in the life found in the Holy Spirit. The law looks at us apart from Jesus, before Jesus, and says, if you kept me, you could have life. But because of the flesh weakening you, you cannot and never will be able to keep me. And so sin is actually using me, but using me to prove that 
point, and as strange as it may seem, this doesn't make me bad. It actually proves my worth, showing you how much you cannot keep me, making that abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. You simply can't do it. You need the Messiah, and you need the Spirit of the Messiah. And in this way, the law is vindicated. It is in this way that Paul can insist that the law is holy and just and good, and the law rejoices in its place in the story, and it celebrates what God is doing. When God acts in Messiah and by the Spirit to give life to those indwelt by the Spirit of the Messiah, the law looks on with, as we might say, a sigh of relief and approval, saying to itself, that is what I had intended all along. Now, I want to close with just a couple of points for pondering. One point for how this might apply to someone who is far from Jesus and not yet a Christian, and one point for how this might apply to a disciple of Jesus. First, for the one who's not yet a Christian. I do not believe that the people of Salida are wa- who don't know Jesus, don't go to church, I don't believe that they're walking around our town going, oh, if only I could keep the Mosaic law. If I could just do what God wants me to do. How much better would my, if someone could just tell me, how do I get out from under this body of the law? I I don't think that's happening. But I do believe that God, because all of us are made by him and in his image, has hardwired a moral compass into every human soul. We saw this in Romans 2.15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. People know their moral failings in the darkness of their souls. C.S. Lewis noted this saying that God had created humanity with a sense of moral oughtness that certain things ought to be and other things ought not to be. They may not want to submit to God's law and standard, but they work quite hard at times, people who don't yet know Jesus, to create personal standards and goals which can then translate to societal standards and goals. And they regularly feel the kind of anguish that we're going to see next week in verses 13 to 25 over the constant failure to do those things that they want to do and doing the things that they don't want to do. Whether they would use biblical language or not, they discover they are slaves to all kinds of desires that they cannot seem to overcome. And I think when we look around at our culture today, what we see tragically is that they come to the wrong conclusion. You see, they think the standard, they think the law, either God's or self or society's, is the issue for not being happy. So what are we doing now? What do we see happening all around us? The tearing apart of any kinds of standard or laws whatsoever. Anything goes. Because if there are no laws and there are no boundaries, if I can just do whatever I want and let my desires reign free over the world, then I'll be happy. The anguish I feel will be removed because there won't be any anguish. (laughs) There's no standard to be worried about. But because of the wrong analysis, it's the law that's the problem. They've come to the wrong conclusion because the problem is sin. And no boundaries isn't freedom. 
they're still slaves to lusts and fears and porn and their career and their possessions and their insecurities and their greed and money and sexual deviancy and on and on and on. No, freedom will only be found in this is what we know and it's why we're here, y'all. The antithesis of Romans 7 will only be found in the Messiah and in the spirit of the Messiah. And this is our proclamation to a world of precious souls enslaved by sin and death. That's the first point for pondering. If you're here apart from Jesus today, all you have to do is say, would you save me? The second is for the disciple of Jesus. I had this really wonderful conversation this week with a close friend of mine who also happens to be one of your elders. I, I love that the elders I get to serve with are my friends. <laughs> I love that. That's sometimes unique in church. I love that. Paul and I were talking this week, and, and he raised the concern with me that, that as Christians, as we were talking about this text and preparing for this morning, that as Christians, we can allow the reality of weakness and struggle and brokenness to be the defining thought of our lives and therefore the defining characteristic for how we live. I hope I represented you that well there, Paul. And I thought that that was incredibly helpful and insightful. And as I pondered it on Thursday morning, it struck me that what Paul was saying is, yes, of course, Weakness and struggle and brokenness is still a part of the Christian life. Of course it is. We all, do we all know this? We all know this. But if you'll allow me a musical metaphor, it should not be the major key of our lives, but the minor key. Maybe that's the problem of too often thinking that Romans 7 is the experience of the Christian, when as I argued at the beginning, it is not. And we need to stop living on defense because of our ongoing struggle with sin, and start living on offense. Friends, when we read Romans 7, 7 to 25, do not do so as if you are holding up a mirror to yourself if you are a believer in Jesus. As one author puts it, it's more like a former drug addict looking back at the moment when he or she finally began the journey out of addiction. It's more akin to the story of someone reading entries from their journal from a time when they began wrestling with questions of God and sin and faith and the good news. But we don't go on talking about our lives as if nothing good has happened to us and as if God's transforming work has come to nothing. We are saved, we are changed, and we are changing still. For all of our failings, we are not the people we were. Worship team, would you come up? We were the I of Romans 7. But by the grace of God, we are now part of the we who has been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We are part of the we who has been buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Messiah was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Friends, we are best described not, you know, this has been so helpful for me. What you said this week was so helpful for me because I, th I, think, that can ha I think I can get too wrapped up in my brokenness and then that affects my preaching and then that affects you. 
And we are not best described as weary wretches saved by grace. That sounds like a good sentence, but it's not the best sentence. No, we are more like saints who sometimes sin. Do you see the difference? You see the difference between those two sentences? Which do you want to be? Which of those do you want to be? You know what? Actually, I'm not giving you a choice. You, you don't get to be number one up there. You're number two because that's who your father has made you in Jesus. You are his. You are redeemed. You are free. So live as a saint who sometimes sins. Live who you are. <laughs>